listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today to discuss the development of the Marcellus Shale is Bill DeRosiers. Bill is the external affairs manager at Cabot Oil and Gas and the host of Shale Gas News, a morning radio show that covers all things natural gas in Northeast Pennsylvania. Bill, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Well, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure, and I'm glad to see you guys starting a podcast and sharing all the good work that you guys do in a different medium. I guess to start, why don't you just tell us about how long have you been with Cabot? How did you get into the industry? And just a little bit about your background there. Well, I hope this podcast is two hours long if you really want the whole story. But I uh, have been at Cabot eight years, and I've had the pleasure of working for my current boss, George Stark, uh, for an additional two years as a consultant before I started in-house at Cabot. So to say I've been in the industry about 10 years now. Uh, While I was finishing my Master's of Business Administration at Misericordia University, I had the opportunity to uh, enter the natural gas industry through a program called Energy in Depth, which is a uh, a nationwide campaign to help educate uh, and, at the time, work with grassroots groups, landowner coalitions, companies that were developing natural gas, specifically in Pennsylvania and Ohio and New York, Uh, promoting the good efforts of what was going on there through a couple of different combinations of of relationships I had, people I knew in the business, and my own experience growing up in New York in the mining business. My family owned and operated an open pit aggregate mine for about three generations. I found myself working in natural gas, dealing with some of the same issues that my family had dealt with in an area that had never really seen natural gas development, Pennsylvania and the southern tier of of New York. So basically I was told, hey, get in my truck, drive to any pro-gas meeting, anti-gas meeting, any township meeting where natural gas development could happen. I met so many people during that time, and I got the opportunity to work with a number of companies, including Cabot, but some of the other companies I worked with, uh, now defunct Lenape Energy, uh, Norse Energy, Uh, Chief Oil and Gas, uh, Southwestern Energy, Williams Midstream, DTE. So I got exposed to so many different companies across Pennsylvania and New York, and then eventually Cabot had an opportunity in-house to do much of the same work I was doing full-time for them. Yeah, I think this will be an interesting interview for our listeners. Your uh, career seems to overlap right with sort of the shale revolution taking off. It, it really did. So where I went to school, Misericordia University is in the suburbs of Wilkesbury, Scranton area. People mostly associate us with the office. Sure. Uh, but what I think uh, is most exciting is it is old anthracite coal region. Uh, so at one point in time, it was the largest coal operation in the world, anthracite. And now that's all all decommissioned. For the most part, there's still a couple of active mines, but the underground mining that was famous for Scranton is, is, is done. But now you have natural gas development just north of Scranton and Wilkesbury in Susquehanna, Bradford, Wyoming, Sullivan counties, the northern tier of Pennsylvania that we call it. And not only are we developing natural gas up there, we have become one of the largest producers of natural gas. In fact, Pennsylvania as a whole, second largest producer of natural gas behind Texas. And I think if you take all of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia's production and and we'd be like the third largest country in the world in terms of energy production or something. 
third or fifth. But what I'm getting at is it's an enormous volume of energy. So we went from one type of energy and being the worldwide leader of that to another type being natural gas. And my college was kind of at the, at the cusp of it because my university wasn't in the footprint of the Marcellus. It was just south of it. But that's where the media market was. So when I was going to school, we were dealing with, is hydraulic fracturing good? Is it bad? The word fracking with a K, even though it's not really spelled with a K, it's just spelled with a C, but it's a whole other podcast debate on, uh, you know, dictionaries sure. and, and, and terminology. But I got to see how quickly the image of the industry spiraled out of control, especially in Wilkes-Barre-Scranton, where it's easy to say, uh, those big headlines, so hydraulic fracturing and dangerous environment, hy hydraulic fracturing, polluted water supplies, people are struggling. But when I started working in the industry and traveling north just 30 minutes, 45 minutes, that wasn't the case at all. And again, I experienced some of this growing up in the open pit mining business, the aggregate business, because as, as a family, we were trying to expand in other things like concrete or pavement and, and environmentalists were trying to stop us, you know. The, so I saw it on a small scale. And when I got into the natural gas business, it was completely transformative. Case in point, Susquehanna County, that's where Cabot's entire operational footprint is. We don't operate anywhere else in the country right now. We used to operate in Texas and West Virginia, and we had some exploratory plays throughout my tenure at Cabot. But we're all in on Susquehanna County. 10, 15 years ago, Cabot started operations 2006, 2007 timeframe. Uh, go back there, and if you pull the census data, Susquehanna County, in terms of job creation, uh, wages, employment numbers, uh, led the Commonwealth in the worst way possible. It was not a place you went to go to work. In fact, uh, the population was aging out. More people were getting older. The young people were growing up and leaving, not going to work there, mainly because the county relied on bluestone, timber, and, and dairy. And neither of them or none of them are economic drivers anymore. But here comes natural gas. Here we are today. The county is at full employment. In fact, when we have job openings, we have to look outside of the county to try and find qualified people to come work there uh, because we are at full employment. That's how transformational this industry has become. And you know, I might be jumping ahead here, and I'll, I'll repeat this again later. Over the last 10 12 years since Cabot really went all in on development, Cabot and Williams, which would be our exclusive partner when it comes to midstream and pipelining, because Cabot just focuses on, on, on development, $10 billion invested between the two companies in the Susquehanna County. And that doesn't even count in the royalties, where we've paid to the landowners another $2 billion. So $12 billion between two companies in our operations has completely transformed that county and that area. Yeah, that turnaround is certainly amazing. Uh, and I grew up outside of the Detroit area, sort of an area where economically it doesn't seem like there's a lot of opportunities. And uh, for something to come along, I'm sure it's been great for people in, uh, in Pennsylvania, like as you've described here. Across the board. And what we're also seeing now, and we have a better appreciation for it, I think, as a region, is how many people come from, say, Wilkes-Barre-Scranton, where there's no actual development, to work in the gas fields every single day. And I think that's the profound shift that we've seen up in the north, where when it first started, and it was only a couple of drilling rigs and a couple of companies up there, they weren't pulling the labor force like we see now. And when we do that, we have so many stories in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton market of... Um, 
Johnny or Bobby down the road works in the gas fields now and his job is because of natural gas development. So it's kind of come full circle to Northeast PA and there's a lot more support for this industry than there was before. A lot of this development has come on the backs of uh, the development of two technologies, namely fracking, as you mentioned, and horizontal drilling. Could you just describe what those technologies are? It's a subject that a lot of people have very strong opinions about. Inside knowledge of the industry can be kind of tough. So uh, could you just talk about those technologies and then maybe just give a little bit of description of how natural gas production companies uh, bring natural gas to market? Sure. Happy to do so. So Cabot Oil and Gas Corporation is what we call upstream. We produce gas. We find the resource, gas being our focus up in northeast Pennsylvania. Throughout our history, we've done oils and, and, and wet liquids, as we've called them, propane, butane, ethane, but we're targeting specifically dry natural gas. And what we do is we locate the resource, which is a geological formation, the Marcellus, sits approximately 6,000 feet below our the ground up in up in northeast Pennsylvania, and we use two technologies to develop that resource. Um, traditionally, you would find an oil or gas play, and you would drill a, a, a vertical well straight down to the pocket, and uh, the resource would produce out of there. That's what we commonly call a conventional resource. So think of just putting a straw right into a, a Coca-Cola or something like that. What's uniquely different about shale, and when we talk about shale, is when you reach the shale formation, it won't inherently produce anything unless it's stimulated. And that's where the hydraulic fracturing aspect comes into play. So before we can even remove the oil or natural gas from this rock, we have to drill down into the formation. So our drilling operations uh, go down about 6,000 feet Somewhere during that 6,000 feet vertical up and down section, we start to turn the drill bit and it allows us to horizontally reach more of the formation. So think about it this way. If you're trying to drain a two square mile area and you're just doing vertical wells, you're going to be limited on how much rock you can actually touch. But if as you're drilling down, you can turn that drill bit and then drill out horizontally through that formation, through that pay zone, you can touch so much more of that rock, thereby increasing the productivity of, of, of your resource. So hydro, uh, horizontal drilling is a technology that's evolved over the last couple of decades to become very precise about where you want to turn the bit and where you can land it. And the funniest thing about horizontal drilling is people think we actually go down and make a 90 degree turn and then go out, but it's not. It's actually a very slow, gradual process. As we're drilling down, we reach a kickoff point, as we call it, and we'll start to bend the drill bit outward. And over about a quarter of a mile, we'll land into the Marcellus formation, and then we'll drill in excess of a couple miles on that well. So once we've drilled the well, we then bring on a different crew, a completions crew, a completions operation, commonly known as hydraulic fracturing, that allows us to stimulate the rock. Um, and, and the best example I can give of this is think of styrofoam. Uh, the two terms we use in our business a lot are porosity and permeability. Styrofoam is sort of like shale, or shale is sort of like styrofoam. If you break a block of styrofoam open, you'd see that there's a lot of pockets, so it's very porous. But if you took a styrofoam coffee cup and you pour coffee into it, the coffee doesn't leak out, despite having all those pockets in there. That means there's no permeability. So shale is very porous, lots of little pockets of gas trapped in there, but it's not permeable. So hydraulic fracturing allows us to overcome that impermeable 
uh, trait of the shale, thereby connecting all those little pockets together. So once the well is drilled into the rock through horizontal drilling, we then use fluid that we pressurize and we pump down into the rock and we crack that rock open, thereby creating permeability and giving a pathway for that gas to come back to surface. So that's where hydraulic fracturing is used. Hydraulic fracturing as a process, I think, has been around since World War II, the 1940s, 1950s. It's evolved just like anything, but it's something that's been utilized for decades in this industry. And it wasn't until the right combination of pricing uh, reliance on foreign sources of energy, both oil and natural gas, and the desire to produce homegrown domestic energy that the two technologies really were used together and economically worked. And that happened over the last two decades. So kind of long-winded explanation, but hopefully it helps your listeners understand what we're doing. We know that sort of historically, the emergence of new technologies, there's uh, a lot of cases of sort of fear driving new ways of developing things. Probably no secret to our listeners that the past several years fracking has been debated quite a bit. Can you just talk a little bit about the emergence of that technology, what sort of challenges that presented the industry and how you guys approach that at Cabot? Sure. The the industry has, has uh, how should I say, had to defend itself and also had to educate a lot of people on what we're doing. As I just explained, our technologies are not new. Um, they're old. They're, they're, they've been around for half a century in some instances. And it's not something that people traditionally saw much of because when you think about oil and gas development, you're thinking probably out in the middle of Texas or Oklahoma or the Gulf of Mexico or overseas. And it wasn't really prevalent in places like Pennsylvania, um, at least where we found the Marcellus Shell and were developing it. So it quickly... Uh, got lost on people that what we were doing is actually a tried and true method. We're using technologies that were developed in laboratories, whether they be at the university level or through the Department of Energy, and quickly turned into this this debate over whether or not our processes and our development were environmentally insensitive or, or causing harm to the environment. Uh, specifically, where we operate in Susquehanna County, we actually have a lot of subsurface shallow methane. In fact, there's a state park, Salt Springs State Park, you can go to that throughout history, people have gone to to watch the bubbles of methane come up through through a water well that's there, right? So that methane's always existed there. Enter the natural gas development, and all of a sudden people are starting to say, well, that's methane, and what you guys are drilling is for methane, and you're connecting these sources, thereby causing more subsurface shallow methane. Well, that's just simply not true. The methane that's that's bubbling to the surface in a lot of instances is shallow. It's young. It's it's uh, biogenic methane, not thermogenic methane that we develop that's taken hundreds of millions of years to develop 6,000 feet below the ground. The other issue is we do use chemicals to complete the process. Just like any industrial application, there's a reason why we need to use these chemicals. And hydraulic fracturing we use a couple of different chemicals, a biocide to treat the water so that there's no biological uh, 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 organisms going in the water down into the well. Uh, we need to make sure that the water itself uh, 
is uh, we use a friction reducer, which prevents the pipe that we're pushing through down to the formation from, from rupturing or breaking. So we use a friction reducer so that that water is slick. It's no different than what you'd find in dish detergents when you're washing your dishes and how your hands feel kind of slimy. It's that same concept. It allows us to efficiently and effectively develop the resource without um, compromising the integrity of the well that we built. So there are specific reasons that we use these chemicals, but it got out of hand real quick. People were saying, oh my gosh, you're pumping chemicals right into our water wells. Well, that's not the case at all because when we build our our wells into the ground, we install steel and cement at various levels to develop casing to prevent the communication of what we're doing at 6,000 feet into the ground from communicating with your local waterways. Um, at the surface, another great, great example, when we develop a pad site, we install multiple layers of felt and plastic liners. We then identify areas that are natural spill points, whether it be a valve fitting or a hose or a pipe, and we install secondary and tertiary containment systems. Oftentimes these systems can accommodate 150% of whatever fluid's passing through there, whether it's diesel fuel for running the generators or water, just fresh water for our operations, we make sure that if something were to spill because of human error or, an, or mechanical failure or something, that it's not getting off site. It's not going to a local stream or a pathway. So we could spend a whole podcast going over every example where we are deemed unsafe, unenvironmental or, 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 or we're causing harm to the environment. But the reality is, is if we sit down and we look at everything we have to do from our permitting, from the environmental professionals we have on site, I think you'll start to see a completely different narrative start to form. In fact, in a lot of, a lot of instances, we are working with the conservation districts, the Department of Environmental Protection, the local environmental groups that want to work with us to develop the best available technologies to make sure that we are, are, are taking care of sensitive environmental areas. So the, the list goes on and on. I know we were chatting before we started this podcast on Cabot's water recycling program, right? That's a prime example of something that we started doing in Pennsylvania where any fluid that we use in hydraulic fracturing that goes down into the well and then returns to the surface is captured into steel tanks. We then bring that to centralized water treatment facilities where we put it through a process to remove any sort of undissolved solids and then we bring it back to the next hydraulic fracturing operation and we reuse that water again. So we are at almost 100% recycle reuse on any of our production fluid or our flowback that we call it from our operations. There are some companies that use underground disposal methods or they have their own treatment process for, for these waters. But the reality is we took a otherwise waste stream and turned it into a beneficial reuse for us. And that actually allows us to cut down our need for as much fresh water on these sites. So these are just examples of things that I don't think people truly appreciate and understand that our industry takes into account day in and day out. Sure, that process of taking a byproduct of production and mm -hmm. turning it into or re reusing it or turning it into something that could be useful someplace else is, is an underappreciated element of industry, really. And I'll be remiss if I didn't mention that because of this waste stream, and I'm not afraid to call it a waste stream, this waste stream, other industries have started looking at that fluid. And I know of a company up in Northeast Pennsylvania that's taking that fluid, they're stripping out um, any residual oils that might come back with it. They're stripping out any um, uh, chemicals that might be in the water left over from the processes. 
And then what they're doing is they're stripping out the salt because the Marcellus Shale is an old sea bed. So it's very salty. So any water you push down there is going to come back naturally salty. They're stripping out that salt and they're making a product. Um, I think they sell it to Clorox. I'd have to double check that. But they're making a product that's used in your hot tubs and your yeah. and your and your pools. Funny enough, they actually said if you took their salt that they strip out, it's actually purer than Himalayan sea salt that we <laughs> consume every day. Now they're not selling that at, for tabletop applications, but they're just saying from a scientific standpoint, we can handle all of your waste streams. In some cases, they're beneficially reusable. My opinion is that sort of at the heart of the uh, hydraulic fracturing discussion and debate is kind of a misunderstanding of the way that companies operate within communities. And I think Cabot's story is a really interesting story of uh, not just cooperating with the community, but really investing in it. We're very proud of our, our relationship with the community. Again, because we're focused specifically in Susquehanna County and then at a secondary tier, Wyoming County, Bradford, Luzerne, Lackawanna, but that's not where we're developing. But we recognize that our employee base is either from Susquehanna County or from those surrounding counties. And actually, I might like to highlight even New York residents come down to work for us and with us. We understand the value of investing in these communities because our employees are the community. So we have a, a very robust program, if you will, where we have invested in healthcare, we've invested in the environment, and we've invested in education. So if I, if I can entertain you for a few minutes, a couple of years ago, right when I started at Cabot, 2011, 2012, uh, it was quickly identified that healthcare was a major issue in Susquehanna County. Very rural. It's the third largest county, I believe, in the state geographically. But if you needed healthcare, you'd go to Binghamton or down to Scranton, in some instances an hour, hour and a half away. And in the middle of winter or a cold spell like that, it might be difficult to get there. There was a hospital in Montrose, the state or the, the county seat, and it was built in the 40s. The then doctors built it. So people would joke that it was one big HIPAA violation. But the reality is they were desperately needing a new hospital that could meet the needs of the community. There was a USDA grant secured to help build the hospital, grant loan program, but they needed to raise a certain amount of money from the community standpoint to activate the match. So Cabot, our board of directors, came together and they uh, donated a million dollars. And then they challenged the community to raise an additional million dollars. And every dollar the community raised, Cabot would match with another dollar. Well, in less than six months' time, the community raised $1.2 million. So Cabot, true to its word, put up another $1.2 million. And then through all of that, the Weinberg Foundation invested a million dollars of its own money. So in six months' time, $4.4 million was raised, activating the USDA grant loan program. And now a, a hospital is built up there that offers more services, more, more proactive care, and in some instances has people from other counties coming to use its facilities. So now you have Susquehanna County, we talked about it before, going from really high unemployment to really low unemployment to the fact that we have to bring people in from outside the area to work. We now have a healthcare system opportunity that people don't have to drive an hour or two hours away to receive that necessary healthcare. And people are starting to, um, how should I say, enjoy being in, in the county again. Uh, not to say that people didn't enjoy before, but when you travel to these other places, it's just kind of like expected that you have the basic health care that, that we didn't have before. Another area that we looked at is, is, is the environment. 
I can point to a number of trails, uh, parks, facilities that otherwise were uh, in need of a facelift or just didn't exist before. And we work with our contractors all the time to identify those opportunities through in-kind services, donations, utilizing publicly available dollars, but our skill sets, our engineering abilities. We've built a few parks. We've built a few miles of trails. We've helped environmental groups uh, with cleanups, things like that, that otherwise would not be doable without our, our opportunities or our, our involvement. And then lastly, and this is probably the thing I'm most excited about, is our education investment programs. So when I started at Cabot, we were working with one career and technology center, the Susquehanna County Career and Technology Center, and we were funding scholarships. Um, the scholarships were for every program. If you wanted to go to career and technical education and you couldn't afford the out-of-pocket expense, we would pay for it. Culinary, beautician, uh, diesel, mechanic, anything like that, welding, we would cover the cost. Well, that program was very successful, but we realized real quick that we needed a workforce that could actually work on our well sites and do things. And while those skill sets were good, they weren't exactly what we needed for a petroleum technician or a compression technician. So we then worked with a local college that started a school of petroleum natural gas, and we invested $2.5 million into that school. And that school created a two-year Associates of Applied Science. So think career in tech, but also college. And these students could go through a two-year program that cost a total of $24,000. And I'm going to pause and re-say that. $24,000 college education that if you completed the program, and they have a high 90% placement rate, you could be coming out of there making $60,000, $80,000 a year with almost no debt. I mean, I challenge yeah, you to find amazing. another school <laughs> yeah. to do that. So here we, we, we've created a high school program of career and technical uh, folks. We then created a collegiate level entryway into our industry if people wanted to do that. We connected the two through dual enrollment articulation agreements, which we fund. And then we've expanded that high school level feeder program from one career and tech center to this year, we'll support 20 different career and tech centers across the entire Commonwealth, from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia to Allentown, Lehigh Valley, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. Cabot is funding similar scholarships. To date, I want to say we've done about 1,000 scholarships, and this school year alone, I think we'll double that. Yeah, this is really sort of the untold story of not just the natural gas industry, but I would say sort of business in general, that you have economic opportunity really leading to a cycle of just sort of general human flourishing where businesses are investing in the community and uh, everybody's sort of being lifted. And probably uh, the most exciting way. part of it is, is businesses are investing in things that derive employment opportunities. And thereby, when people have more jobs, they can go to the local store and spend money. They can pay for their children to participate in programs they couldn't afford to do that before. Grandma and grandpa have a couple of extra dollars at Christmas time. So what we're also seeing is the need for so many social services going down in the county, right? And that's those are the things people don't recognize. And that's and we're just talking about Cabot's investment. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface with that $2 billion in royalty payments that have been paid out to the landowners of Susquehanna County and then other companies have paid out. So there's a, a, a tremendous amount of wealth that just has not existed in that corridor of northeast Pennsylvania and the, and the, and the northern tier of the state that is allowed for investments in colleges and programs and community colleges, health care, Another hospital in another county was recently rebuilt. So, I mean, again, our story 
is unique because I'm here telling it. It didn't exist before. But you could find so many similar examples in the neighboring counties where natural gas development's happening from other companies that just goes to uh, expand exponentially how much the impact of shale development has had in the Commonwealth. Is there anything uh, that I haven't asked you about that you think our listeners would be interested in? Oh, we, I mean, we could go on and on here, buddy. The, uh, on education standpoint, I, I will like to highlight that we've gone one step further after we did the high school and the collegiate level. We recognize that the middle school students just aren't getting the educational opportunities at an early enough age to make informed decisions about high school and college when it comes to energy and, and jobs associated with it. So we work with a tremendous organization, the OEC, the Oil Field Education Center, out of Houston. And they have a mobile oil field learning unit. 24 hands-on lessons that roll into a 5th, 6th, or 7th grade auditorium, classroom, and students can go through this and they can learn everything from porosity and permeability to geology to how natural gas is developed, hydraulic fracturing, um, drilling, everything that we just discussed, the students have activities to do in a hands-on lesson. They even learn things like fractional distillation, which is a whole other podcast we could talk about one day, about how you turn this product into a value-added product. But we're running that program now um, in Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and we have put up enough capital and enough volunteers and, and donors to support it that I think we'll get to 100 schools, which estimates this school year to be somewhere this school year and next year, 20,000 students will go through that. I hadn't heard of that. I'd love to do a future episode of a podcast just on that. Actually, I, it sounds like I, a, I'd love to. I'd love to set that up for you. The other thing is we 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 test the students before they go through the program and afterwards. So we actually have quantifiable data to show that students are learning, and when they get exposed to this, and then you talk to them about career and technical education in Lackawanna College or Penn College or whatever, it starts to make sense because we're, we're weaving it into their educational pathways. So that's one thing we're excited about. The other thing I'm really excited about is we've invested in the, in the college, we've invested in career and technical education, but we actually are working with some of our partners up there to invest in a, a commercial driving licensing school and equipment operator school because we're not done yet. We are going to be around for many decades to come, and the workforce demands that we need are still aren't being met. So we are investing in, in a new round of, of educational opportunities that will open up uh, more opportunities, and we're really excited about where that's going to lead us over the next couple of years. Great. Yeah, in the intro, I mentioned that you host the uh, Shale Gas News Show. Do you want to just give our listeners a quick pitch about that and where I, they can listen to you? I'd love to. I uh, A couple years ago, about six years ago, a buddy of mine asked me to start a radio show with him. He was in the radio business, longtime talk show host. And uh, I said, oh, a, a show on natural gas. So that'll last six episodes. Here we are six years later. It's a show dedicated to the energy industry. We talk about all energy. We are heavy on natural gas and oil. Uh, we invite guests to come on. It could be congressmen. It could be politicians. Many of the folks from your organization, including Tom Pyle, uh, have been on the program multiple times. We're broadcasting on multiple stations, including 94.3 FM The Talker and Gem 104. Uh, but we also have a podcast, and the podcast can be found at Natural Gas Now and Mercilus Drilling News, two great organizations that I recommend your listeners check out and read and see what they're doing. But yeah, it's, it's been a great time doing that podcast and a joy to come on yours as well. My guest today has been Bill DeRogers of Cabot Oil and Gas. Bill, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure.